Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing well. Today is the day that my family is celebrating Christmas, because, you know, we did uh, my, my wife's family on Christmas. We're doing our family today. Um, we opened presents like it was Christmas morning, and it's December the 29th. <laughs> well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, so I have to say uh, there will probably be minimal editing of this show. So if you are a listener hearing a lot more ums and whats and pauses than you're used to, I'm sorry. You get what you get. So uh, we do have lots of stuff to talk about today. One of the reasons we wanted to catch up is because there is a special election that's going to be happening in our fair city of Louisville. Jasmine's going to detail all the stuff going on there. Uh, the session is right around the corner. It will have started before our next show. So we're going to be talking about that. And we have a COVID update. Probably a little shorter than we're used to, but uh, we are going to have a show. We're going to talk about important stuff. So Jasmine, tell us what we need to know about the special election in Louisville. All right. So in November, Robert Lavertis Bell, who is a public school teacher, also a um, member of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and he ran for Metro Council in 2020. He announced that he'd be running for the 42nd District House seat. Um, That seat, though, is currently held by Reginald Meeks, who has been in the State House for 20 years. Um, So he was going to run against him. But Reginald Meeks sent his retirement letter to Governor Bashir on December 17th. But you know, the letter didn't really elaborate on his decision to retire. Um, so, Robert, I was going to ask you, do you think that Meeks's decision to retire like has had anything or everything uh, to do with having a primary challenger? I think that's probably safe to assume. You know, I, I think Representative Meeks probably he, he hasn't. I don't know how to say this in, in the best possible terms. Like he hasn't been as active a representative in the past one or two sessions as he has been in the past. He was on our show a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I really recommend people. I mean, Reginald Meeks is a really important person in Kentucky history. Uh, he he served in Louisville in the Louisville Board of Aldermen before he was in the State House. He's been in the State House for a really long time. He was, uh, you know, the member of the Black Caucus when it was smaller and much more, you know, outside of the mainstream of the Democratic Party. He is one of the only people of Native ancestry to ever hold office. He is, yeah, he's a very important person in Kentucky history. Uh, But, you know, once you've been in office for that long, you know, I, I think sometimes when you realize that there are people waiting in the wings... And not just waiting in the wings, but willing to challenge you to take over for the job you're doing. And, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, he wasn't necessarily giving it his all in the past session or two. I think that that probably did a lot to say, okay, well, you know, other people can probably step up and take this on. You know, we don't have confirmation of that, but that that makes sense in my head. Yeah. And I think when the Republicans have a supermajority and you. You just can't do really anything. And then you draw a younger primary challenger. Like you have to kind of think like, oh, God, is is this worth it? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Absolutely. No, you're, I think you're absolutely right. So so I kind of understand. Um, so anyways, that happened on December 17th. 
So on December 20th, Governor Bashir issued a writ of special election to fill the vacancy. And the special election will be held on February 22nd, 2022. And for special elections, the way that works um, is that the county party nominates a candidate. Um, so things happen pretty quickly. And the nominating meeting took place last night. And the Louisville Democratic Party unanimously nominated Katura Heron. Um, Katura has also been on our podcast before. Um, she's currently a policy strategist with the ACLU. And um, she kind of has specialized in like juvenile justice policy reform. She was previously a court-designated worker in the juvenile justice system. Um, she's been active with Black Lives Matter Louisville, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. She was instrumental in getting... Brianna's law passed by unanimously by the Louisville Metro Council, and she's also an Emerge Kentucky board member. And so um, that's who is going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party for the 42nd House District. Yeah, and, and I think it's worth saying that there will be a special election, but the special election, you know, it will be between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And this is a very, very, very Democratic seat. It is one of the yes. most Democratic seats in the whole state. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats are very packed tightly in, in a few districts, in, mostly in Louisville and Lexington. So this is essentially the selection for the seat, uh, the Democratic Party picking uh, uh, Miss Heron, Katura Heron, uh, for this. So that, that's, that's worth mentioning. And, you know, she, she has a great resume. Um, you know, we know her, and, and I, I had heard before that she was interested in, in running for the House. I think that's something you'd heard as well. So it's mm -hmm. not like this is out of nowhere. She did express an interest in it prior, and, and once the seat became open, it, it wasn't surprising to me that she jumped into it, even though Robert Bell had already expressed publicly uh, and, and filed to run in this seat. Yeah, I think that this is something that um, a lot... that that people had already been talking about and expected. It's what she wants to do. Um, she and I have talked about that before. And so I, I don't know what her intention was as far as if she would have ran against Meeks in the primary, um, if she was going to jump in that race, but she, she wants to be, a state representative and yeah. um and this is the district she lives in so this yeah. is the only way it would have happened unless she would have <laughs> moved right so yeah and she and robert bell are both young black progressive candidates yeah um so this morning the morning after the meeting robert bell tweeted Yesterday evening, behind closed doors, party insiders selected the Democratic candidate for February special election for state rep in District 42, our race. It won't be us, but why would anyone expect otherwise? He went on to say that he'll be on the ballot in May, um, so Katura Heron will have a challenger in the primary. And then the remainder of his thread kind of talked about, like, being up against the machine and the democratic establishment and wealthy donors. Um, and, you know, so he, he was definitely pretty spicy uh, the morning after not getting the nomination. And I guess like kind of, I don't know. I, it's tough to me because I, I know Katura personally, um, but also I mean, she isn't really who I think of as being like 
the Democratic machine or the establishment. She is a young black queer woman. Um, she has been in like activism and organizing spaces, um, her, you know, most of her adult life. And, and so she's just not really who I think of as like the person who is um, the, the, the Dems and the establishment and the machine. <laughs> and so I, I just found these tweets kind of weird and like, they didn't really like name her, but I mean, she's, she's their nomination. So that's, I guess who he's talking about. So I don't know, Robert, what did you think about the response um, to all of this? Y yeah. I, I, I didn't find them weird. I, I think it's important to keep in mind who, who Robert Bell's base is. Um, yeah. You know, he's the he's the chair, the co-chair of the Louisville Democratic Socialist of America. And the Democratic Socialists certainly like the uh, one of the the things they trade in is angst at, you know, the dims as you put them. <laughs> if if you're online a lot, that is uh, the dims uh, and that's the the colloquialism that they will use uh catch a lot of heat um from the the Democratic Socialists. I, I mean, I think it's important also to realize that left-wing politics in America in 2021, maybe 2022 by the time you're listening to this, have a few different flavors. And I think like the organizing that Keturah Heron used or ha ha has, you know, been present with in her life with the ACLU and, in, you know, in civil rights spaces, it's a slightly different flavor than the democratic socialist organizing that Robert Bell has been involved in. Mm -hmm. And and those, you know, there's a lot of overlap, a significant, a huge amount of overlap, but they still are kind of different flavors. And so I do think that there is some daylight between the two types of candidates running in this race or the two specific candidates running in, in this race. So I think Robert Bell's tweets are to his base, um, the base of people he's depending on him to, or the people that he's depending on to elect him representative in the 42nd. It's going to be a contested primary. So he's going to have to beat Keturah Heron. So, you know, when you're running against somebody, you're you're not always nice to them. You know, you're not, like, painting them in the best light always. And by tying Keturah Heron, because she was, in fact, selected by the Louisville Democratic Party executive board, like, you know, that's politics. That's what Robert Bell is talking about when he's putting those tweets out. Now, you know, Keturah Heron can come right back. And, and, and you know, there's lots of things that she can probably say uh, about the efficacy of the Democratic Socialists, about, you know, her record versus Robert Bell's record. You know, there's lots of things that she could probably come back with, and she probably will. And we have a contested election. I really like both of these candidates. Uh, you know, Katura has been on our show. I'm familiar with her. You know, I've worked with Robert Bell uh, in the Get Up work that we've been doing with Josie Raymond. We've actually connected pretty well, and, and I, I, I like him as a person quite a bit. I even, like, tweeted out a little thing of support for him once I saw that Reginald Meeks was retiring. And, you know, I, I'm interested to see what happens in the primary, which is where Robert Bell's eyes are headed, towards that primary. And and Katura Heron has the session now to look forward to. So she has to actually legislate, mm -hmm. do her job as a legislator, and then turn right around and try to campaign to win. Now, Robert Bell... 
Another wrinkle here, you mentioned at the beginning, he's a teacher. He's active in JCTA. You know, and JCTA is a powerful political entity. Um, the Better Schools Kentucky, their their PAC, is a powerful political entity in Kentucky politics. And I would be surprised if they don't get involved in this race. It will be interesting to see, you know, because Katura Heron is a strong organizer and probably has organized alongside JCTA, like what, what they do with this, but the fact that Robert Bell is a member, an active member, um, and, and somebody who works with them, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they get involved in this race too. So that is two major, major pieces of Louisville's political scene on the left side, um, getting active with the, the Democratic Socialists and the JCTA. So in the actual election, Robert Bell, you know, has a lot of things going for him, and the fact that he's not willing to take the gloves off right away shows, I think, that he's he's in it to win it, and I'm interested to see how Katara Heron responds and, and, you know, runs her race as well. Now she'll have a bigger platform because she'll be in the legislature. She'll be on KET. She'll, we'll be talking about her probably um, as the session moves along. So this is definitely an interesting race. I understand why Robert Bell said the things that he did. Uh, I would have expected very little else from him. Um, But, you know, I think we're in for an interesting race. I really wish that maybe we could disperse the good represent uh, the the good talent in politics in Kentucky a little bit more, and we didn't have Katara Heron and Robert Bell running in this. Yeah, office. that's what I was going to say to end this is that I really wish that we could have both of them in elected office, and I mean maybe we can one day in different offices, but I. I don't like that they're going to be running against each other. <laughs> and Jasmine, um, that actually is a good transition to our session preview because the first thing that they have to handle in the session is redistricting. Maybe uh, when we yeah. get new maps, they won't be running against yeah, each other. Yeah, who knows? It, it might all be for naught. So yeah, that's another another interesting wrinkle. All right, well, let's transition now and talk a little bit about the General Assembly. So like I mentioned at the top of the show, they are convening the day before we record next uh, next week. Um, this is a long session. It's scheduled to run from January 4th until April 14th. There's no break. Um, you know, in the long session, we just go straight through legislating. If all goes according to plan, this is going to be the first long session in a while. You know, they're supposed to happen on even numbered years, but 2020, of course, was shortened due to the pandemic. So we kind of had two short sessions, I guess three short sessions kind of in a row. And this is our first return to a 60 day long session in a while. Kentucky had a pretty busy December when it came to news. You know, we had those tor- with the very devastating tornadoes. The Omicron variant is is definitely going on right now. We're having the special election, and there's a lot of federal news going on. So there hasn't really, I've, I haven't really seen too much actual previewing of the 2022 assembly in the media, but we do know some of the stuff that has to get done. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So first and foremost, redistricting and an extension of the filing deadline is going to have to get done. There are a lot of ways that it could go, but it does appear that the Kentucky GOP has maps ready to go and will pass them pretty quickly after the session begins. So, you know, there's the minimum of like five days and then there is no break in the long session. So, you know, we can probably see these things becoming law very, very quickly after the session starts. Governor Bashir does have the ability to veto the bill, but the GOP can just override that veto very quickly. So I think, you know, we are we may even know, know what the maps look like before our next recording because there will be debate and they will have to do some stuff to pass them, but they will probably pass. There's nothing there's nothing hindering them from passing exactly the maps that they want to see. 
The GOP is also going to need to extend the filing deadline. I have no idea how long the extension will be, if it's like a month or a week or whatever. And and that's actually a place I'm pretty worried. The GOP already knows the maps. They have them in their pockets. They've probably been looking at them for a while and has candidates ready to run in the races that they need to run in. They also already have 75 incumbents, and they know exactly where they need to draw those lines to make sure all those people can stay in their offices. Um, and, and that's kind of how they go. Democrats have recruited a lot of folks to run, but since they don't know the maps, it's hard to know where you know they're going to need candidates and where they're going to need more candidates. So if it's a short extension, it could get kind of dicey for the Democrats as they're trying to scramble to find candidates to run in these districts where they don't know where they are. It's also possible that Republicans will create mayhem in Louisville and potentially Lexington. So current representatives in neighboring districts, you know, the 25 representatives that Kentucky does or that the Democrats do have in Kentucky are all very close together. So, you know, they could, you know, draw two representatives into the same district so they can't run in their home district. And there's nobody in the next district that we know about. So we have to run a freshman, you know, and then all of a sudden you have two experienced representatives running against each other in a primary. That's something they could also do. And if that happens, I expect that the GOP will probably blame this on the Voting Rights Act, which you know necessitates that there are a few majority-minority districts in Louisville. The 42nd, the one you just talked about with Robert Lavertis Bell and Katura Heron, who are gearing up for um, a primary in that you know, existing district, that is, um, that is probably, that is one of our VRA districts. And those districts, the three districts that are in Louisville that are VRA districts, they have actually declined in population over the census. So they're going to have to be redrawn pretty significantly. And if they create mayhem by putting, you know, like, Marilyn Marzian and Josie Raymond in the same district or something, they will just probably say, oh, we had to because of the VRA. You know, we didn't want to. We didn't want to cause this havoc, but we had to is the VRA. I'm sorry. It's this this progressive piece of legislation that the feds forced on us. That's something I also foresee as a potential thing that they might do. So that's redistricting. That's the first big thing that probably will happen after the session starts. The budget, of course, is a major item on the docket this year. In in 2020, the General Assembly passed a pretty basic budget as they're required to in even-numbered years, and then they had to actually do some more budget policy in 2021. And we talked at, at length about that. It was unusual. So really, because we did budget in 2020 and in 2021, this is our third straight session with a budget. This year, Governor Bashir will, will give a budget address. That's something that governors do during even-numbered years. Governor Bashir did that in 2020, and then Republicans took up almost none of his suggestions. 2022, next year, though, is an election year, and I expect Governor Bashir's budget to suggest much-needed and popular spending, which the GOP will then fail to enact. I, and, you know, we will see if this actually works in Governor Bashir's favor or the Democrats' favor. You know, it is something that they can certainly capitalize in the election if they choose to do so. Uh, or, or if they manage to get it right. Uh, and, and that's really the question that I have. We will see if if the governor can play budget politics in a way that benefits his party in November and gives him a little bit more leeway to do a few more things in his final year of his first term. Okay, there are several things left on the table in 2021 that didn't get completed. And, and that's kind of the last thing I wanted to talk about in the session review or preview. In case you forgot, there was an attempt to impeach the governor in 2021. Feels like a million years oh ago. Oh my gosh, that feels like so long ago. <laughs> it, it, it was less than a year ago. 
uh, you know, a bill appeared after the impeachment hearings with all that stuff happening to try to make impeachment by citizens harder. It didn't have time to pass, and it was one of the few things that was kind of left on the table. So that's something that might get taken up. Another bill which looked like it might pass was the Citizens Review Board bill. That's another thing that we looked at. That would give those Citizens Review Board subpoena power when investigating police and other public officials. The protest movement of 2020, though, has lost a lot of steam, Uh, at least I think in terms of the way that Frankfurt is hearing about it. I think that it's certainly less top of mind in 2022 than it was for legislative leaders in 2021. So we will see if Republicans have any desire to actually take up the Citizens Review Board bill in 2022. We also talked a little bit about an abortion omnibus bill in the interim. I do expect uh, that there will be plenty of bills on social issues that make their way through the General Assembly because that's just a safe bet every year with Republicans in control. I don't know how many different ways they can you know, ban abortion, but I'm sure we'll see one or two more in 2022. The Democrats, for what it's worth, their agenda hasn't changed very much. Legalized gambling, medical marijuana, the LGBTQ fairness bill, restoration of voting rights, etc., etc., etc. None of these things really stand a chance, except maybe medical marijuana. Jason Nemes has a bill that he's worked on and he's cleared, I think, with, with some of the leaders in his chamber about medical marijuana. But uh, from at least what I've heard from marijuana policy experts and and people who are very passionate about this issue, they're not the biggest fans of this bill. It is a GOP bill, though, and it's probably what can pass Kentucky. We'll see what we actually get out of medical marijuana in 2022. So anything else that you're looking forward to, Jasmine, or, or was that about it? I mean, there's lots of good bills that I'll look forward to. I just don't expect to see any of them get hearings. Exactly. I think that that will, uh, you know, the things that Democrats are able to do is is make speeches and try to form coalitions and alliances. And, and, you know, the things that Democrats actually get done are sometimes like the kind of secondary and tertiary items on their agenda aren't controversial, but are maybe less, you know, less visible. And and some Democrats can bring visibility to them. I, I mean, Charles Booker's insulin bill, not something that I was thinking about every day. I don't, you know. I know a lot of diabetics, but I don't know a lot of poor diabetics. And, uh, you know, the the struggles that people with diabetes have every day and the struggle to pay for insulin for everybody uh, is something that Charles Booker was able to talk about, you know, substantially. And then even though he left the legislature, that bill passed. Danny Bentley helped carry it. and, And a lot of Democrats made it happen. And there's a lot of Bills like that that we probably don't think about every day that Democrats are able to, to kind of get through every year. So so that's something that we can, you know, look look towards, not the high ticket, high high dollar, high, uh, you know, high value pieces of the Democratic agenda, but definitely something that, you know, will be good that they pass. So, yeah, those- I would I would really like to see um, the bill banning conversion therapy finally make it through. I would like to see movement on, too. That's a bill that has bipartisan support. I think that some of the more moderate Republicans like Jason Nemes and Julie Rocky Adams support that. So that is one that I am a little more hopeful could maybe see movement this year. Yeah. The issue with the the conversion therapy bill is it's a high 
it's a high on the agenda for state level democratic states. So like Colorado bandit, New York bandit, like it's it's things that mm-hmm. that that Democrats want to do. And the Republicans don't want to do things that Republicans want to do. But with good education and good bipartisan support and, and good leadership on the Republican side, you know, it might start to make some progress. Alice Forge Kerr is, of course, leaving the legislature. So, you know, I don't know if her replacement will be a Republican or a Democrat, but if it's a Republican, it's likely to going to be somebody in the mold of Alice Forge Kerr, unless it's the guy that owns the really conservative coffee shop. I think he's actually in that district. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, it, it's something, it's an issue that, that I, you know, it's an important issue. And I, I hope that it does get done in Kentucky. I just don't see it getting all the way across the finish line this year. Stranger things have happened, though. And I'm not usually the pessimistic one. So maybe I'll say, yeah, we, maybe it'll happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like we said, a little bit shorter of a show this week, but we did want to talk about COVID. So the fa- the past few weeks have been very weird with respect to COVID. Overall, our cases have been really flat in the state as a whole, with both 7- and 14-day averages hovering around 2,200 for like two to three weeks. However, something is going on in urban areas that has left me kind of scratching my head. Louisville and Lexington have seen a huge jump in the number of cases. Louisville had 3,200 cases last week, which is more than any week since early September and the teeth of the Delta wave. It was like the highest moment of Delta had like 3,200 cases. Louisville's overall peak was 4,000 cases a week, and we're not that far away with 3,200. You know, if our Omicron wave is simpler, uh, is, is similar to what we've actually seen in South Africa, well, first of all, I do expect that many of these cases are Omicron. And if Louisville's Omicron wave is similar to what we saw in South Africa, it's likely that that, that number of cases in Louisville will actually spike even further, maybe even like doubling in the next week or two. And then after a couple of weeks of increase, we'll then just sharply turn in the other direction and start falling very, very fast. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. That's what happened in South Africa. But, uh, you know, that isn't necessarily what happened in other places in Europe. Um, and so we don't know what's going to happen. But, but, but that's one of the ways it could go. Lexington is experiencing a similar spike, but not quite as severe. Fayette County had about 1,000 cases last week. Lexington maxed out at 1,600 during the Delta wave and, you know, almost 2,000 during the original wave. So they're still at, you know, significantly lower percentage of their high than Louisville. But 955 cases is the most in Fayette County since September. So they certainly have also seen a tick up. But the state as a whole is flat. So this is only hitting urban areas right now for whatever reason. And it could be holidays. It could be any number of things. So, you know, I don't know what's going on, but it does appear that Omicron has come here and is starting to really uh, get a lot of people sick with some on some level with COVID. Vaccinations. New vaccinations are dropping pretty precipitously. We are back down to about 2,500 new vaccinations a week. However, it, Kentucky is now up to 19% total boosted with about 55 or 50% of people over 65 having received the booster shot. We need to get that number up much higher because that's kind of what actually prevents people from catching Omicron is actually having people with three shots and older folks, you know, even if, you know, it's a little bit, even if they've been fully vaccinated are likely to catch more, more likely to catch Omicron than Delta or the original, original COVID. So something we need to get higher. Kentucky's hospitalization rate is actually falling right now. Uh, After the initial Delta wave subsided, we saw another small Delta wave, probably with some Omicron mixed in that's been going on for the past like two or three weeks. 
that recent increase actually looks to have crested, and we're actually going down. We're down to below uh, 1,300 hospitalizations right now, and that's the first time in two weeks that we've been that low. I think hospitalizations are the metric to watch. There is some evidence that Omicron is a little bit milder than previous variants, but you know, not enough evidence to know for sure. Hospitalizations are likely the way that we're going to identify if Omicron is actually less virulent. Virul- virul- vir- how do you say that word? Vir- virulent, virulent than um, than Delta or the original COVID. Um, and the way that we're kind of counting cases is a little bit less complete because so few people are taking PCRs, which go to labs and get recorded. And so many people are testing positive on rapid tests that they keep in their home and then quarantining for five days and then feeling better and testing negative on a different rapid test and going about their lives. So we're probably just not catching nearly as many of the cases as we have. So hospitalizations, even though they're a lagging metric and won't start to tick up even if Omicron um, is worse, probably won't tick up for another couple of weeks, I think that's the metric to watch. The way that many pandemics in the past have worked is that mutations cause deadly diseases to become more viral, more contagious, and also less deadly. And Omicron may be a step in that direction. You know, it could be the case that this is on its way to becoming a little bit more like the flu or a little bit more like a cold, which is not where it was a year ago and definitely not where it was two years ago, but it may be on its way to that and Omicron may be a step. There's a lot of places we could go um, from here, but on you know, you know, given the journey we've already been on, this could be a, a step towards that um, you know, equilibrium that we live with with lots of other viruses in the world. The CDC also reduced the isolation time for people exposed to COVID who have asymptomatic COVID from 10 days to five days. That was a pretty controversial move, but in my opinion, I think it was a good one. There is evidence that the most contagious period for COVID is the two days prior to actually developing symptoms. So that's when most people are giving it to other people. And, and really just a couple of days after you develop symptoms, is there good evidence that that you're still contagious? I think reducing quarantine time overall actually increases the likelihood that people are actually going to follow the instructions. I don't know anybody who quarantined for 10 days after catching COVID. I mean, honestly, I don't know anybody. Governor Bashir, when he had that one exposure in the car, I think is the only person I saw actually quarantined for 10 days. But I think people might actually be willing to quarantine for five days. And and so, you know, I think that that actually is a little better. It'll keep people in the house and, and keep them from spreading COVID in the few days after they catch it, or a few days after they start showing symptoms when they actually, uh, when they actually, you know, are contagious. So if you got COVID over the holidays, you know, no judgment. It happens to, it's happening to tons and tons of people. Just, you know, stay quarantined. That's, that's all there is to it. Jasmine, um, what do you think about COVID right now? Omicron's kind of starting to hit us. Like you feeling a little nervous. How are you feeling about it overall? Yeah, I'm definitely feeling nervous. I feel like that's a real, that's kind of a hot take, Robert, that you, agree with the decision to reduce the isolation time because that's gotten a lot of criticism. Yeah, it, it has. It has. And and I will tell you, um, I was a little nervous about it. And one of the people who really set my mind at ease about it was Ashish K. Jha, who is like a pretty popular, um, you know, public health expert. He's on the you know TV and radio a lot. He's active on social media. He served in the Obama administration. And I listened to an NPR interview with him 
last week where he kind of laid out the evidence for it and, and talked a lot about like why he supported the move. And it was very convincing to me because I think the case that a lot of the public officials made was the one that I just laid out, which was mostly to say like, this will actually increase the likelihood that people actually follow instructions. But I think that, you know, there is also significant scientific evidence backing up the the idea that you should quarantine mm-hmm. for five days. And just like nobody quarantines for 10 days. Nobody does it. So the people who are just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they reduced the quarantine time. Like nobody was following directions. So, I, you know, I don't really know. Everybody I know who actually had COVID or someone in their house had COVID did quarantine for 10 days. But... Most people I know who have had an exposure to COVID have not. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. (laughs) You probably are are friends and family with more responsible people than me then, I guess. So, uh, you know, I have some pretty, pretty wild stories about that. So, you know, I don't know. At the end of the day. That's what they told us to do. And I've heard I've heard wild stories from uh, people in the courthouse and and things like that. But <laughs> I guess like most people I know, I a lot of people I've worked with have had COVID and and they've stayed home. Um and like friends I've had with children with COVID have stayed home. But I guess I see what you're saying there. Yeah. I will say everybody t- stays home from work for as long as they possibly can. Um that one is in fact the case. Um yeah, I, I don't know, Jasmine. I kind of feel like Omicron is a step on the journey for this being a much more endemic disease. It, yeah. is just, it is just a lot different. I think the way that the disease is acting is just a lot different than Delta and a lot different than Alpha. And our reaction to it is a lot different, too. And I, and I just, you know, I don't know. I don't really know the right way to think about it. But I do think the right way to act with Omicron is probably different than the right way to act with Delta or the right way to act with original COVID. Um, You know, I think boosted people have the same level of protection they had with Delta. The, you know, the symptoms and the likelihood you go to the hospital when you're vaccinated and when you're boosted is very low. So, you know, I, you know, that, that's something that we have to think about, Uh, you know, the stress and strain on the healthcare system though, is something we need to track because there are just a lot of unvaccinated people in Kentucky mm-hmm. and what Omicron does to those people is something that we need to be watching for. So yeah, um, definitely a heady time. We'll see where cases go. I mean, I think we're going to see some incredibly high case numbers just in terms of positive tests in the next few weeks, but whether that turns into a public health emergency, you know, it's definitely possible. Um, but it's something that we, we need to watch to see if it emerges. Yeah, I think where I'm at is I've upgraded to N95 masks, and I think I am done with indoor, like, public gatherings for a while. I went to see the new Spider-Man movie when it came out, and no one else had masks on and it was packed and i was like i think this is my last movie for yep, a little while i uh, i am in the same boat i did the exact same thing i was wearing an n95 in the theater i and i yeah i watched the matrix in my house <laughs> <laughs> i did not go to the theater and uh i'll show you my like i went to the holidays because i tested negative on my rapid test um i have a lot more of those that i'm probably going to be depending on a lot more often if I want to spend time with family or friends. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, 
there you go. Uh, we have a little bit shorter show this week. Probably a lot more ums and pauses than you're used to because it's lightly edited. But we did have a show. And, you know, by the time we talk to us next week, we will be in the midst of the legislative session. So, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And if you missed it, we have t-shirts now and you can find um, that link in our Instagram bio and on our Twitter. Um, So buy an old, uh, buy a my old Kentucky podcast t-shirt. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week.